Hello and welcome to another episode of Relay Theology. Today I interview Dr. Scott Davison. Dr. Davison is professor of philosophy at Moorhead State University, where he specializes in metaphysics, ethics, and philosophy of religion. Dr. Davison and I connected back in May of last year at a conference here in Grand Rapids on the dialogue between science and religion, uh, for which he was the keynote speaker. The presentation was on his recently released book titled Petitionary Prayer, A Philosophical Investigation. I really enjoyed his analysis and had to have him on the show. So here's my interview with Dr. Scott Davison. Scott, thanks so much for joining me here on Relay Theology. Now, before uh, diving into the philosophical meat, I like to start these interviews by first getting a little background uh, from our guests as to their personal religious or irreligious beliefs and kind of a brief history of how they got to those beliefs. Yeah, sure. Well, thanks so much for having me. Um, I was uh, raised as a Quaker of the silent variety when I was young. And so in that situation, there was an hour of silent worship uh, with some interjections from people, uh, thoughts off the top of their head, but no message, no minister, no um, no emphasis, not really a lot of emphasis on doctrine. So for me, religion and doubt always kind of went together. I always had lots of questions about religious belief, but I always felt like I had some kind of religious belief. And uh, I've been through a number of other uh, Christian denominations since then, but I've kind of come back to this more mystical and individualistic approach to religion. And so when my students ask me, I tell them, well, you know, Baskin Robbins ice cream has 31 different flavors, and there's at least 31 flavors of Christianity. Mine might maybe number 32. So it's <laughs> classify. You know, I'm not sure. Uh, uh, you know, I could go on for a long time about which parts I believe and which parts I don't uh, from various traditions. But um, when I started studying philosophy uh, in college, it, it seemed completely natural to me, just a continuation of something I'd been doing for years, just trying to understand what to think. And like I say, for me, faith and doubt sort of go together. And um, so I, that's how I kind of got into philosophy uh, through religion and, and maybe vice versa. So Now, your most recent book, uh, Petitionary Prayer, A Philosophical Investigation, came out last year. And of all the possible topics uh, to focus for a book-length treatment on, what led you to the topic of, of petitionary prayer? Well, when I was... Uh, more active uh, in in different circles when I was a bit more of a Baptist, there was a lot of petitionary prayer going on, and I always wondered how people could be so sure that it was working. You know, people would keep prayer lists, and they would check things off, and a lot of these requests had to do with uh, things happening out in the world, and I always wondered, how did, they, how did they know what the cause was? You know, how did they know if God was behind this or something else? And uh, when I started to study philosophy, of course, this worry became sharply focused. You know, when you study about causation and you study David Hume, uh, those doubts really leap into the front. Uh, so uh, I always had those lingering worries, sort of how do you know just because you asked for something and it happened that it was God answering the prayer? I always had that concern. Um, and then some years ago, I heard a paper at a conference by Isaac Choi, a very interesting paper on petitionary prayer, and it kind of crystallized and focused for me a lot of the worries that I had, made me think about it deeply, and I've been working on it, uh, the question ever since then. Um, and in my, my work on prayer, some of it's been very skeptical, some of it's more positive, the book is sort of mixed, uh, but um, that's how I got started on this path, and I've been on this path for a good while now. 
after this investigation, what do you think it would mean? Like, what are the kind of necessary conditions to to think of something as being answered uh, by God? Yeah, so I think uh, this question is a really pivotal question if you want to try to talk about um, the epistemological stuff, you know, trying to figure out if those prayers ever were justified in believing that they were answered. And so you have to take a closer look at what it means to say that a prayer is answered in the first place. What does that mean? Separate that from the question of how we might know right, right. those conditions are satisfied. And in the book, I talk about this quite a bit. Um, for a long time in the literature, I think it was sort of assumed that uh, it was sufficient for saying a prayer was answered by God uh, that uh, had the prayer not been offered, the thing wouldn't have happened. And I think that's just too simple in both directions. I don't think it's necessary or sufficient. Um, and so there are some other possibilities, other accounts in the literature that I won't dwell on the details. What I came to in the book was this account that I call a contrastive reasons account. And the idea is that the petitionary prayer has to make a difference in some sense. The sense that I fastened on in the end was something like this. Um, in order for a petitionary prayer to be answered by God, it must be the case that the offering of the prayer plays some essential role in some true contrastive explanation about why God does that thing rather than not. And so if you were to take the prayer out of the picture, so to speak, you would that contrastive explanation would no longer work. Uh, this doesn't mean there's only one explanation of what God does, but that the prayer plays an essential role in at least one true explanation. There may be other, more than one explanation. And so um, there are other accounts according to which um, the, the prayer doesn't have to make that kind of difference. And I, I just, I think as a test case for me, it seems like kind of a clear case that uh, um, if the prayer makes no difference at all to what God does, then, then the petitionary prayer was not answered. So I take that to be a kind of touchstone. Uh, some people do deny that, but I find it puzzling. Um, so uh, now I think somebody's going to come up with a better account than mine someday. I've seen some criticisms of my account that I, I think are interesting. I still prefer my account, but I think somebody's going to come along someday and do a better job of this. But I think it's really helpful to try to get clear about what it means to say that God acted for a reason. You know, and it's not it's not straightforward. It's not it's not um, it's not obvious how to proceed. And there's lots of room for investigation here. One of the things I hope that my book does is sort of spur other people to 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 look into these things more carefully. And I think that's already happening a little bit. And I'm very happy to see it. Uh, there's some really interesting. Um, new work on this question is coming out, some good reviews, uh, critical reviews of my book, especially uh, a new one by Caleb Coho about to come out. So um, that that's all really interesting to me, and I'm, I'm hopeful that we'll get clearer about this question as the work moves forward. Um, but I tried to point us in that direction anyway, because I think that's an important question to answer. And when you get into the skeptical worry, if I can talk about that now, uh, the question, how do you know whether God has answered a prayer? Um, on my approach to this, what we're saying when we say that God answered a prayer is we're saying that um, the offering of the prayer plays some role among God's reasons for doing what God does. So if you want to know whether or not God has answered a prayer, you have to know something about God's reasons. And uh, this is not a straightforward thing either. Uh, some people think the traditional teachings on prayer from, say, the Christian tradition or some other ones um, settle these questions, but I, I think it, it depends on the different kinds of petitionary prayer 
and it depends on um, the circumstances we're talking about. So if we, within traditional theism even, uh, there's a very strong uh, thread of skepticism about God's reasons for either bringing about or permitting particular events. And you see this very clearly in the skeptical theist move in response to the problem of evil, right? The idea is we don't know all the good things in the world. We don't know why God does the things God does. God has good reasons. We don't, we don't know what they are. We shouldn't expect to know what they are. If you go down that path, I think you've got pretty powerful arguments from within the theistic tradition to say, in typical cases, we probably don't know whether or not petitionary prayers are answered. Unless there are cases where we can argue persuasively that the thing that happens is something that would not have happened without uh, divine intervention. And it's very, it's very hard to say exactly what those cases would look like. But in a lot of the cases that got me started along the worry, worrisome path here, you know, the skeptical path, um, for instance, if people are praying for something ex external in the world to happen, for somebody to get a job, or for somebody to get a good medical test result, um, it's, it's very unclear to me why as a traditional theist, you would say, we know that God did this because, in part, because we asked. It's it's just not clear. I mean, it seems like it could be the case that that's true, or it could be that God has reasons of which we are completely unaware for doing those very same things that we happen to request. Right. You see the problem. So from within theism, there's this epistemological worry that I don't, it's not obvious uh, how to overcome it, at least not in all the cases. So I think that's an interesting puzzle that I talk about that in the book a little bit, um, that it's not just sort of uh, standard skeptical worries that drive uh, drive these problems. It's also there are resources within theism itself that lead to some of the skeptical concerns. Just to, to, to rewind a second here, um, with regard to your kind of dissatisfaction with the notion that just because... Uh, the object of a prayer comes to pass that that's not good enough to think um, that that one could say that you know that that prayer was answered in any kind of confident way one of the illustrations I think that's really kind of helpful uh, to to bring that to light is is one where you talk about where you're walking through an airport in a foreign country the language of which you don't understand and you know some guard shouts something at you in a language you don't understand and you you know, you get down on the ground, you don't know what's going on, you just, you, you get a little scared, and that's exactly what he requested, but you didn't actually know. But, so it's not, there's no sense in which you responded to his particular request in any significant way, you just kind of happened to do what was, uh, you know, what was actually being requested, but not in response to it. Um, and I think, I think that 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 helps me kind of understand uh, kind of what you're talking about here, as God might have reasons that he wants something to come to pass, and whether you would want that as well, it might be kind of a superfluous desire, because it might have happened anyway. It's fun because um, the religious people I talk to about prayer, um, most of whom are strongly committed uh, theists of one tradition or another, they have different reactions to this skeptical problem. Some say, yes, of course that's right, we don't really know, but we still have other reasons to keep praying. Other people say, no, I think we do know, we, we, have a, we have a right to say that. And then, and so there's a kind of a really sharp divide there, it's very interesting. Um, and and part, of the, part of the issue here has to do with different kinds of petitionary prayers. So uh, when we talk about the elements or components in our prayer, you know, we have to talk about the petitioner and then the request and the thing requested, the object, and the different objects 
uh, we might think um, lead to different kinds of defenses and different kinds of challenges. Hmm. Uh, so the cases where I think the skeptical problems are stronger are cases where people request things for other people and they are sort of external goods in the world that could have multiple causes, you know. And then the cases where I think it's easier to argue, uh, to, to provide a defense of a petitionary prayer, uh, are cases where it has to do with more spiritual goods that are individual and um, things that you wouldn't expect uh, to, to have happen unless God intervened. And so you might think that um, if you experience somehow being forgiven or experience God's presence in response to a request, you might think, well, why would that happen otherwise? Whereas if you get a job or a good test result, you might think, I don't know why that happened. You know, it's to say. So it, the different kinds of prayers and their different objects uh, lead to different uh, approaches. And, uh, and uh, Caleb Coho points out in his review of my book that your theology makes a difference here. If you think you're supposed to be asking for certain kinds of things and not others or focused on things, or if you think prayer is supposed to be communal or uh, focused on spiritual goods, and, and I didn't really talk about that in the book. I was just sort of being generic and neutral about looking at theism, looking at requests in general, you know. And so there's a lot of room for new work on this question. It sort of spins off in different directions. Um, yeah, and as you mentioned, um, you know, the these responses are even further complicated uh, when you factor in one's view of divine providence. And so you have... Um, you know, things like open theism, eternalism, and monism. Could you kind of give us like a nutshell version of of those three kind of basic views of divine providence and how, you know, the kind of questions that they might introduce uh, that are yeah. unique to those? Yeah, sure. Uh, and this is something I talk about in a little more detail in the book, but sort of in a nutshell, um, the open theists hold that uh, in some respects, the future is still undetermined. It's just not there yet to be known. It depends on free choices uh, of either creatures or God. And so nobody can know those things that are not determined yet. Nobody can know them, not even God. And so that means there are some things that uh, God is uh, literally discovers as they happen. And uh, if you think that the offering of petitionary prayers is something that people do freely, then it will follow on that picture that God doesn't always know what people are going to ask until they ask it. Right. So this has some implications for how uh, answer prayers might go on that open theist picture. So, for instance, um, if we think of the world as having a kind of natural direction or the way in which things are naturally tending, um, and, and if I uh, freely decide to ask God to do something that's contrary to that direction in which the world is tending, on the open theist picture, God uh, might have known that I uh, was thinking about uh, asking for such a thing, but he wouldn't know until I actually chose to do it that it was going to happen. And so if, if the world's not tending that way, it looks like it might take a miracle for God to answer that prayer. Uh, by contrast, if the thing I asked for is already kind of uh, in the works, you know, if it's our, the world's already heading that way, uh, you might say, well, then God can't answer my prayer because it was already going to happen. I think there's a little room for the open theist to say something like this, though. They could say, well, if God would have, would have, you know, changed the world to make that happen, uh, if things had not been going that way, then in some sense God would have uh, brought it about in response to your prayer. And so maybe we should say God 
uh, in some way does answer your prayer. There's a little room to maneuver there. Um, so for the open theist, you know, it's an interesting picture to think about God discovering things as they happen sometimes. Not every aspect of the future, but some parts of it. And so we typically think of petitionary prayers as free, but not always. And so that adds an interesting, complicated wrinkle for the open theists. Um, there are some people who think that God determines us to pray and then determines uh, that he would answer in a certain way. But that that is completely alien to the open theist picture. The second alternative that you mentioned in terms of these three pictures of providence is the eternalist picture or the uh, divine atemporality picture. On this view, God is totally outside of time and so doesn't experience any form of temporal succession and doesn't feel the way we do that there's a certain moment of time that's current or now as opposed to the ones that are past or the ones that are future. God experiences all these moments as simultaneously present from the perspective of eternity, from outside of time altogether. And so, um, for the eternalist, you can imagine that uh, you might say something like this, well, God knows from eternity that I'm going to ask for a certain thing, and so from eternity, God can arrange things so that that's going to happen, and he can do that in response to my request. Um, and so, so that, that makes some sense, uh, that uh, and that uh, you could have uh, answer prayers that need not even be miraculous events. Um, there's some um, fancy footwork that the eternalist needs to do here to explain the pieces that uh, God uh, knows about from eternity and then the pieces that God decides about from eternity and how they fit together. I'm not saying that can't be done, but it's a, it's a challenge for the eternalist to explain how God could respond to things that God knows from eternity because you would think God would also know from eternity how God would respond. So there's a puzzle here uh, that's not particular to this prayer question, but just for eternalists uh, generally. Um, the third perspective is the Molinist uh, perspective. This is named after Luis de Molina, who was a 16th century Spanish Jesuit uh, theologian who believed in uh, middle knowledge. Middle knowledge is this idea of a kind of knowledge that's in between two other kinds of knowledge. So the first kind of knowledge you might uh, call with Molina <clears throat> would be God's uh, necessary knowledge. Um, the necessary knowledge is uh, things that are true and beyond God's control, like the truths of mathematics, for instance. Two plus two is four, you know, God can't do anything about that. And then on the other extreme, you would have this uh, knowledge that is contingent uh, and depends completely on God's will. We call this, uh, following Molina, God's free knowledge. So, for instance, uh, you know, God knows whether or not uh, He will sustain in being the universe, the physical universe, uh, in a million years. You know, and that's up to God. You know, you might think that's totally up to God. So, on the one hand, you have what is necessary and beyond God's control. The other side, you have what is contingent and totally up to God's control. And in the middle, Molina says you have middle knowledge, which has an element of each side. So. Something that's part of middle knowledge is contingent, like free knowledge, but it's beyond God's control, like the uh, necessary knowledge or the natural knowledge. And so an, an example of this, according to Molina, would be that if a creature were created and placed in a situation with free choice, uh, the creature might choose to do something. And so uh, that would be a thing that would be contingent because it would be a free choice. But according to Molina, it would be something that uh, God couldn't control because it would be the free action of, of, another, of another being. You know, if God were to be able to control it, it wouldn't be free. 
So, um, and this is just one example of middle knowledge. There, there are other kinds of possibilities. Uh, indeterminate truths uh, of various sorts might also fit in this middle category. So on this picture, uh, Molina says God has all three kinds of knowledge. So God knows what every creature would do freely if placed in any situation at all. And so God knows if God creates a certain world and puts uh, people in it in a certain situation and they're faced with a certain choice, he knows exactly what they're going to do. And uh, I think this, this view gives God the most control, so to speak, in terms of uh, providence and then maybe also in terms of the mechanics of answering prayer, uh, it makes it makes the most sense, maybe at least to me, uh, because you can see how God would know prior to creating the world that if he placed us in a certain situation, we would ask for certain things freely, and then he could decide freely that he would respond in a certain way. Now, the strength of the Molinus picture that gives God most the most control is also uh, maybe its weakness, because uh, as open theists have argued, uh, it looks like the, the, the defender of middle knowledge is saying that God specifically intends everything that happens because God knows that if he places us in a certain situation, we're going to do such and such, and he wills that uh, we be in that situation. So does he will the result also? And that's a question. That's a problem for Molinus that, you know, whether or not, whatever they say about prayer, that's, uh, you know, one of the questions uh, in these providential disputes back and forth that uh, they have to answer. So depending on your view of providence, you might say different things about the mechanics of prayer and how it might be answered. Um, and that's an interesting wrinkle to uh, keep in mind uh, since people have, you know, really different theories of providence. Having thought about this issue, do you think that studies that are unable to kind of parse out any kind of real effect of prayer? Do you think that those are damaging to the idea of prayer? Or do you think that there are more issues at play and that, that um, you know, believers in prayer don't really have much to worry about with regard to uh, whether or not prayer has any kind of power? Yeah, I think this is really interesting. Uh, some of the earlier studies that were um, done on this question seem to suggest a statistically significant positive result for prayer, but then the largest and most recent one suggested that there was no such effect at all. Um, I think the way these studies are put together, I don't think they help or harm the, the um, theistic uh, case for petitionary prayer. I, I, just, I just don't think they're helpful as, uh, as evidence either way. Uh, let me explain why I, think they, why I think they fall short. Even if they did come up with some spectacular positive result or a spectacular negative one, I just wouldn't be impressed. And here's why. Uh, when you're trying to do these studies, what you're trying to do is try, try to tease out the effect uh, of this one factor, the offering of the petitionary prayer, and see what difference it makes. That's the kind of, uh, you know, uh, basic approach that we're taking. And um, so we try to divide up uh, uh, some patients into two groups. You know, there's a control group and an experimental group, and the control group is not prayed for in a certain way, and the experimental group is. And then at the end of the study, we see what differences there are between those two groups. Now, if, if this was something we were studying like the uh, influence of some neutral force, a natural force in the world, like, uh, like the solar wind, you know, these particles streaming off of the sun continually, uh, something that, that interacts with everything uh, in the same way, it would make sense uh, to do this. But if we're talking about God, who's a person who has you know, a providential plan for the world, 
in which you know different people are going to play different roles and and again we don't have access to god's reasons or any information about how that's supposed to go it just seems like a mistake to assume that petitionary prayers are going to have the kind of influence you would have if you directed the solar wind you know at a certain set of objects but not at another kind so so i just find it puzzling to think that you know we could we could really isolate all the differences and control uh, the exposure in the right way so as to tease out a difference that makes sense so for instance in these experiments we have people being prayed for especially in the experimental group in a way that they're not prayed for in the control group um, but but how do we know that the people in the control group are not receiving other petitionary prayers from other sources um, that are important and interesting and helpful we don't know you know and then, and then, you know, we can't tell people, friends and relatives, don't pray for your sick father in the hospital. You know, we can't do that. So we can't really screen off the, the influences. Uh, what we're really trying to do is say, yeah, but there's this extra boost of prayer. You know, does that make a difference? Uh, but is that the natural context in which we want to talk about these things? Uh, a stranger praying for you in a study. You know, it's a puzzle uh, to me to think that this this is taken very seriously. It just doesn't make sense of the phenomena we're trying to understand. Uh, because again, I think it's a per we're talking about a person who makes decisions based on reasons, uh, not an impersonal force that acts the same in every case. And so I just find the whole study approach kind of fraught from the outset. And I, I don't think it really would confirm or would disconfirm the efficacy of, of petitionary prayer. So I just, I'm inclined to think that uh, that it's kind of a pointless exercise, really. With regard to some of those issues, actually, uh, C.S. Lewis had, had some interesting things to say. He writes, dare we say that when God promises, you shall have what you ask, he secretly means you shall have it if you ask for something I wish to give you. What should we think of an earthly father who promised to give uh, the son, whatever he chose for his birthday, and then when the boy asked for a bicycle, he gave him an arithmetic book. So C.S. Lewis here is kind of uh, hinting at some a, a particular interpretation of, of two uh, Christian teachings about prayer, one being, um, you know, that, that God's will be done, and then another saying that, look, your, your prayers matter, your will matters us as as you know uh, earthly beings right yeah and so he he's ex he's kind of exploring this tension it seems to me like it's a really difficult tension how do you personally kind of navigate that tension and i mean do you see other avenues of of i guess research on this topic yeah that's a good question you know uh for those who are attached to the christian tradition that's an interesting uh set of puzzles that lewis raises there um, in the book, the way I uh, divide up most of the book, it's uh, in terms of challenges and defenses. So a challenge to petitionary prayer is some argument designed to show that it can't work or, or, or that it's pointless in some way, whereas a defense is something like an argument trying to show how it could work or it could have sure. a point in terms of influencing God in the world along the lines we described. And in the book, um, I talk about these uh, specifically Christian teachings regarding petitionary prayer as, as epistemological defenses, you know, trying to explain not only how it might work, but how we might um, justifiably believe that that, uh, that prayers have been answered. And so um, some people find, they think that the Christian teaching is very clear, that, that it says that uh, God does answer our prayers. 
And so when you pray and something happens, then that's probably God answering the prayer. My own interpretation of the Christian teachings is that they're a little bit new, more nuanced than that, and they're not, not very clear. And they don't really guarantee that any particular petitionary prayer that you're going to offer uh, will be answered. Uh, in fact, maybe it, it could be true that maybe none of them will be. It's possible. It's hard to say. You know, and again, there are different prayers with different objects and so on. It's complicated. Uh, what Lewis is talking about there is a puzzle that he found in the gospel teachings. So he finds attributed to Jesus two very different kinds of teaching about petitionary prayer. And he actually wrote a letter to his local clergy saying, hey, I'm stuck on this puzzle. Help me out. What should I do? How am I supposed to pray? And to the best of my knowledge, they never answered him. So the the tension is between what he calls the A pattern and the B pattern. According to the A pattern, every petitionary prayer you make includes somehow implicitly the idea of, of thy will be done. So it's sort of like, you know, God, would you do this thing for me? But I understand that, uh, you know, my requests are all subservient to your uh, better judgment. And so, you know, I'm not demanding anything. I'm, I'm asking for something. But in the end, I want your will to be done. And the pattern for this, the, the chief pattern, the most prominent example is Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, looking ahead to his crucifixion and saying, you know, Lord, if this cup could pass, pass by, that will be great, but your will be done. So that's the A pattern. And in the A pattern, as you can see, has this kind of caveat built into it or a sort of hesitation saying, you know, I'm asking for something, but I understand. I defer to God's judgment. And the second pattern, the B pattern, is uh, found in other passages where Jesus seems to say, look, if you ask in faith, no matter what you ask for, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be granted. If you ask in faith without, dancing, without, in faith without doubting, if you tell this, mountain to jump up and go in the sea if you have enough just a little bit of faith that would happen and so lewis says now that teaching makes it sound like as you said uh, it's up to me and my will you know if i have the right kind of faith i can ask for whatever i want and it's not a hesitant uh kind of asking it's not saying thy will be done it's more like well this is what i want and this is the end of it you know and so lewis says how do i put these together i don't see how you could coherently pray in both ways at once and so what's you know which one am i supposed to do am i supposed to say thy will be done or am i supposed to say hey this is it and uh and he's stuck and the quotation you raised there earlier was about the father who promised to give him give his son a present and then um but only if it's the present the father wants to give him. And what Lewis is saying there is he's criticizing the attempt to reduce the B prayer to the A prayer. So the idea would be is we could say, well, you can ask for whatever you want as long as you're properly attuned to God's will. And then you're always going to ask for what's in God's will anyway. And so those two things kind of come together. And so Lewis is saying, yeah, that doesn't work because – you know, if you imagine a father and a son, the father says, okay, whatever you want for your birthday, but, you know, I wanted you to ask for a math book and not a bike. And then the son's going to feel that that wasn't honest. And so Lewis is saying you can't reduce one to the other. And I sort of agree with him about that. I mean, um, uh, so I do feel like there's an unresolved tension here. And uh, there are a number of things you might do, I mean, in response to the tension, if you have these Christian commitments. And there are different things people do. Uh, some people just... Uh, ignore the B teaching. They just ignore it. They think that's not, uh, they don't take it seriously. They don't think, uh, and they just say, well, I don't think that's really supposed to be serious. You know, maybe that's just uh, elliptical for something else. We should always pray that I will be done. 
know, so they sort of ignore the B in favor of the A. Other people, I suppose, embrace the B teaching and ignore the A so much. They say, well, we, we really do need to have faith and tell God this is what we want. Um, and uh, if we really do have faith, then God will come through. Uh, I've heard people say that uh, many times. Um, th this is a complicated question, um, and it goes to uh, the heart of what Christians should believe about what Jesus taught, you know, and, and whether everything attributed to Jesus in the Gospels uh, is properly attributed to Jesus, you know. And so this opens up a huge can of worms that I don't want to step into. Uh, but but you know that that's kind of the uh, that's kind of the outlines of the dispute, and that's why Lewis said what he did, and I think he did put his finger on a really interesting problem there. It's not it's not that it can't be resolved, but it does require some work. You know there are these there are, there are these patterns, and they are kind of intention, and that's why I raised the example of the in the book of Lewis's question because it seemed to illustrate to me some of the. Um, things that are not clear about Christian teaching, specifically about prayer. Um, there may be some things that are clear. Um, what's not clear to me is that, uh, you know, it's not clear to me that every petition will be answered or that in general, my petitions are going to be answered. Uh, and so I, I don't find the Christian teaching very helpful epistemologically, at least in general terms. Uh, you might think, well, there are certain things that you wouldn't expect to happen, like I said earlier, uh, Caleb Coho is pretty good on this, unless you had asked for them. Like if you think that you've been forgiven, well, why would you be forgiven if you hadn't asked for that? Um, you might argue that, that that's a sensible thing to, to think. Um, uh, I, I'd have to, you know, think more about that. But anyway, so there are some, there are some puzzles there, and, and I don't think the Christian teaching clears all of them up. You know, it's still, it's still, um, still not clear in certain ways. And it's revealing, I think, that uh, sometimes when um, people are exhorted to pray in the petitionary way in the Christian scriptures, um, they're not always told to pray in that way because God will answer. Um, so uh, St. Paul, for instance, tells people, uh, when you're anxious, um, you know, let all your requests be known to God. And then he doesn't say God will fix things. He says the peace of God will guard your hearts and your minds. So it's sort of like there's a practical reason to pray in the petition way, whether or not it's going to be answered. So there's not not always a promise that God's going to answer. So in particular cases, how do you know when something happens that you requested, whether it was because you requested it or for some other reason? Um, sometimes I think it's probably impossible to say. If you appreciate the content and the tone of what Real Atheology has to offer, please consider writing a review on iTunes or becoming a patron at patreon.com. All music is the work by Work of Wolves. We want to send a special thanks to Richard Kane, Lucas Stewart, Matt Yellen, Brandon McCleary, John Donaher, Paul Pinos, Kevin Bachowski, Andrew Snyder, Jason Makuluta, Evan Wirtz, St. Nimbus, Bob April, and Alexander Song.